Hi, I wanted to let you know that I have a brand new, totally free masterclass available and I'd love if you wanted to check it out. It's about an hour long and it goes over three simple things that every dog owner needs to know in order to teach a dog quickly and easily without pain, force, a major time investment or fancy equipment. When you register, you'll also get a free 20-page ebook all about what I call the dog training triad. You can find it at anniegrossman.com slash masterclass. If you work at school for the dogs, you might at some point be approached by your boss with your boss asking if you would be willing to be interviewed for the School for the Dogs podcast. In this scenario, I am the boss, and the person I'm interviewing today is Aaron Whalen. Aaron started out with us as a client, ended up doing our professional program, and is now a trainer and a manager with us. She is wonderful. I asked some of her coworkers to find adjectives to describe Aaron. They said gregarious, honest, humble, fearless, compassionate, down-to-earth, witty, innovative, zealous, funny, loyal, team player, empathetic, warm, goofy, creative. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Erin. You can book a session with Erin either at our studio or virtually at schoolforthedogs.com slash Erin. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. Hello, I am here with Erin Whalen. (laughs) Did I say it right? You did. That's very good. I know the H has to be sounded there. It doesn't have to. But it doesn't have to. As long as it's not Waylon, <laughs> I'm happy. Waylon. Uh, and I am super psyched to be talking to you. Um, I've known you for quite a while now. Yeah, it's been actually. over six years. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, gosh, there's so much to talk about. But um, why don't why don't you just kind of tell the story of how you ended up at school for the dogs? Um, mm-hmm. We can go from there. Okay, great. And and actually, why don't you start off? Sorry, why don't you start off by just explaining what you're doing now at school for the dogs? Sure. Because you've done, you you've been on both sides, the client and staff side, and you've worn a lot of hats on the staff side too. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah. So right now, at the moment, I am both an associate trainer and interim day school manager at School for the Dogs. So I work at day school, puppy day school. I do private sessions for puppies and basic manners, adolescence, um, and day training. I also teach prep school and puppy kindergarten. Oh, my so goodness. <laughs> and describe what day school is for people who aren't familiar. So for day school and puppy day school, those are drop-off training programs for, we have day schools for adult and adolescent dogs and puppy day school. It's in the name, guys. It's for puppies. Um, (laughs) And during both of those programs, the dogs uh, go through some relaxation. They have the opportunity to play with other dogs if the moment is appropriate. They work on training foundation skills. Um, and we also socialize them to a variety of bizarre human objects like skateboards, vacuums, certain scary sounds and things like that. Um, and just generally try to give them the tools that they need to survive in New York City, because this is a weird place to be for both humans and dogs, especially. True. Mm. <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I describe day school to people as like, um, 
someone else is going to be your dog's main person for this mm-hmm. period of time. And that person happens to be a really great dog trainer. Yeah. Um, That's and, great. Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, it's like a class, but you as the dog owner don't need to be there. Um, yeah. I also sometimes describe it as like what, what like daycare should be, right? Yeah, it's like a very, very, I mean, I hate to call it a very high level daycare, but I mean, it does have that appeal to it, certainly. I mean, we do, of course, want all of our day school clients to be involved in private training on the side with us so that they can Mm -hmm. sort of reinforce all the work that we do at day school. But it is nice, I think, for them to have, you know, a couple hours where they know that their dog is going to be in good hands, learning good things and reinforcing a lot of good habits and behaviors and they don't have to do anything yeah and they're like doing stuff the whole time it's not they're doing stuff the whole time yeah and they're yeah and it's almost like probably more tiring because it's only Mm -hmm. like three to five hours depending but they're probably more tired out by you know the, the training that they do during that short period than they would be you know, at twice at daycare for twice that amount of time. Yeah, just um, all of that mental work that they do. So let's talk about younger Erin, <laughs> <laughs> who was a French horn player. She was, heaven forbid. Yeah, you still play sometimes. You know, I don't. And in fact, I actually took my French horn back to my parents' house recently because it was taking up space, which in New York City is very valuable. I know, and, I and you like, you probably weren't charging it rent. No, it really wasn't. And it wasn't contributing to my rent in any way. So <laughs> I, I was not earning rent with it being in my apartment. No, I, I have not played in over a year, I would say, on um, a tour that I, I went on. But yeah, it's just... it's. It How did weird. you get into playing French horn? I'm guessing it was like when you were a kid. Yeah. So I started playing French horn. I wanted to start in fourth grade, but there were no school instruments available. So I started in fifth grade. Why French horn? So when I was in third grade, our band teacher, shout out to Mrs. Moody, you rock. Um, she did a demonstration for the school of all of the different band instruments that you could choose from which is like such a great way to get kids involved in band. And she herself was a French horn player. So when, needless to say, when she demoed the French horn, it sounded amazing. And I heard it and I was just like, oh my God, that's it. I want to do that. I want, that's it. I'm going to play that. Um, and it just, I totally fell in love with the sound of it. And I think I was 14 when I decided I wanted to be a professional musician. And wow. Yeah. I went to music school at Rutgers and. Were you in a marching band? I was in a marching band in high school, and I hated every second of it. So they gave me drum major, which is what you do when someone hates marching band as much as I did. Oh, I don't even know what the drum major does. The the drum drum major major is the person who conducts the marching band. Oh, okay. So you're like Professor Harold Hill in the music man. Uh, Basically, yeah, that was me. Walking backwards. Uh, did I do any? No, I stood on a platform, like a really tall, <laughs> like ladder, and just conducted this group of high schoolers. What was your favorite thing to play on the French horn? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know that I had a favorite piece that I like to play, but or I, genre. Uh, I really like the Romantic period because I'm a sap, and I like like really passionate, emotional music. So, uh, Richard Strauss was my favorite composer, and. I like to play a lot of his music because it was very like emotional, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're emotional, you're the perfect amount emotional. Well, thank you. <laughs> you you've never struck me as someone who's overly emotional. I do all my emoting in private. You Good. are welcome. <laughs> as any polite person should. <laughs> um, did you have dogs when you were a kid? I did. Um, I had a really amazing mutt who whose life in our family predated my existence. Um, And she lived until I was about seven. She set the bar really high. Um, And then we had a brief encounter with a beagle for about a month. Not a great match for our family. Uh, He went to live on a farm, which is not a euphemism. He did, in fact, (laughs) go to live on a farm, and he was very happy. And then we had a short-haired collie who used to herd our families during parties. That was really fun. Um, Hmm. And that was the last dog I had until I adopted my little muffin Oliver here. Yeah. So how did how did um, Oliver end up in your life? 
So Oliver ended up in my life. Um, I adopted with an ex-partner of mine. Um, it was just the time in our lives where we thought, yeah, a dog sounds good. Um, I had really wanted one for a long time and we were, you know, pretty stable at that point. And I thought, yeah, this, this is the time. Um, so we adopted Oliver. I knew I wanted to adopt a dog cause that was really all I had ever known. And I would have rather paid like a $250 adoption fee rather than $4,000 for a dog. Um, so we adopted Oliver and it was, I think I can probably. Where did you adopt him from? Did you, and did you, per did you purposefully get a beagle type dog? You know what? I actually, because we had that brief encounter with a beagle when I was a kid, we, we were in possession of a beagle for about a month who had previously belonged to um, some friends of ours. It's not like we just found this dog and then gave him up. It, we did like a trial. They were trying to rehome him because he needed more space did not work out with our family. So he went to live somewhere else, but because we had had this negative experience, he was a resource guarder. He bit my mom. He got off the leash with me and ran away from me. Why was I nine years old walking a dog? That's a conversation for another day. Um, but because of our experience with Buster the Beagle, I specifically did not want a Beagle type dog. And I in fact had seen Oliver, don't tell him, cover your ears, baby. Um, I had seen him on Last Chance Animal Rescue's website and I went, no, he looks too much like a beagle. So I, I went for this other dog. His name was Huck, who looked like kind of like a, I don't know, he had these like bat ears, but I think it was just the angle of the picture. It looked, He just looked adorable. So I, I asked about him. And the rescue told me that he had already been adopted, but would I like to look at his brother, Oliver? <gasps> <laughs> so I was like, well, he is pretty cute. And that is how I ended up with a beagle type dog. It was not intentional, but <laughs> I would be hard pressed to own another type of dog later in life. I think. What, what led you to last chance rescue? Um, honestly, I think it was a specific dog. It was, his name was Pepe. He was a, he looked like a jackal. He was like a brindle, like French bulldog chihuahua mix or something crazy. I honestly think they call anything a chihuahua mix so that people will just adopt them because they don't think they're going to get too big. Um, but he ended up not being a great fit because he didn't like kids. And I worked with kids at the time. But they, they, I was already approved by them. Like we had already paid like an application fee. And I didn't want to do that with like eight other rescues just to get denied. So I just kept looking at the dogs that they had. I actually really liked Last Chance. Um, they bring dogs from the South. Oliver's from South Carolina. They have a sanctuary down there for animals that can't be adopted out. They keep them on this like beautiful farm that they have. And then the rest of the dogs that they bring up here live in foster homes, which I think is so important for those first, you know, especially with puppies for those first few weeks of their lives. Yeah, sure. Um, so what was it like bringing home the wonderful Oliver? Oh, it was hilarious. I literally rocked up to his foster mom's home with like a collar and a leash. And I just like leashed him up and I was like, let's go, buddy. And he looked at me like, what's a leash? It was just such... <laughs> It was so funny. I had done so much research. I had read all the books. I had watched all the videos and I still knew really like nothing. About where, well, where were you, where were you getting your information? So I, I think like a lot of people in my generation was a total Caesar Milan disciple because I didn't know any different. He's so, oh, you're, you're not, you're not anymore. You know, I'm not. <laughs> we do not subscribe to pseudoscience at school for the dogs. <laughs> hundred percent now. Um, but I ended up, I actually, you know, I read one of his books and it was one of the best things I ever did. Cause it was, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was a book in which he consults with, um, I do give him credit for doing this. He consults with a lot of other dog trainers from different training backgrounds, um, to give like multiple perspectives on dog training, which I thought was great. And I discovered in that book, Dr. Ian Dunbar, who, completely changed everything. It like blew everything out of the water that I thought I knew about dog training. And I realized that there was such a better way to mm -hmm. communicate with my dog than trying to intimidate or coerce them into doing what I wanted. Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of what led me to positive reinforcement training. Thanks Caesar. That's, 
Yeah, that's actually really cool. Yeah. But I wonder, I have to look up which book that is. I, I've heard about this before. I don't know if it's because you told me about it, mm. though, or someone else, but yeah. um, that, is, that is a cool thing. Although it doesn't seem like he consulted all these people and then was like a changed man. <laughs> no, definitely not. But I, I did at least give him credit for being like, you know, here's a lot of different techniques. Find what works for you. And he did even admit in the book, like, when I, cause he had this meeting with, you know, Ian Dunbar and he showed him kind of how to get his dog to work for like just a tennis ball. <laughs> oh, really? Hey, come here. You were doing so good. Come here. Thank you. Um, but, uh, yeah, he definitely did not, I don't think change any of his, uh, ideolo ideologies after that encounter. It <laughs> doesn't sound like, um, so you and I started working together, I think, pretty soon after you got Oliver. Indeed. Indeed um, you started that's, that's right around when we were in, I think, our first storefront studio, mm -hmm. so our second studio total. Um, am I right? It was the small one on East 2nd Street? It was. I think it was still the what is now the acupuncture place, I think, was School for the Dogs, right? Yeah. That yeah. was where I was, yeah, yeah. as a client. And uh, how did you come to School for the Dogs? How did you find? Because you live pretty far away. I do. I live very far up um, on the west side, in on like almost Washington Heights. Um, and this is something uh, to which I have to give credit to my uh, my former partner because he actually found School for the Dogs. It wasn't me, man. He found you guys uh, in a Google search, I think, and it just you know we read the reviews of what everyone was saying, and it seemed like you were the best in the city, and we wanted the best, so. Um, we did, I don't think Kate remembers this, but Kate did our initial appointment when Oliver was a little squish. And then we <laughs> did what was then I think called puppy socialization class. Mm -hmm. Um, when it was like by color, the cat classes were color coded. Right. right. Cause we and, have different, we used to have it like modular. So yeah, like linear, but mm -hmm. of course that's changed. It is. It has changed. I did like the colors, but I also like the linear model. Um, but yeah, it was it was an awesome experience. And I just, I mean, he had learned sort of a lot ahead of time because I had done a lot of work with him, but I just thought it was just so, such a valuable experience for him and for me in particular, because it really helped solidify, like, this is kind of what I wanted to be doing with my life. Definitely. Really? So yeah. early on with training with him? Yeah. <clears throat> what what about it appealed to you? I really hmm, what about it appealed to me? I just I don't know. It was just something that clicked for me in a way that nothing else really ever had. And I I just loved learning about behavior and learning about how I could shape my dog's behavior in a way that was really elegant and kind of nuanced, but didn't take a lot of effort and was really fun for both of us. I just thought it was so powerful and it, I felt like it gave me and him a relationship that was really based on trust, like mutual trust. Um, and I, I just really wanted to give that to other people. I think that's something that really motivates me as a dog trainer is to be able to help people communicate with their animals in a way that they didn't know was possible. Hmm. Well said. Thanks. <laughs> You had also worked with horses, though, growing up. Am I wrong? I know you are absolutely correct. I rode horses for about eight and a half years until mm -hmm. I was around 14. I uh, competed early on, but that got really expensive, so I just kind of rode recreationally. And they are definitely my my first loves in the animal kingdom, and I, I look forward to working with them again one day. I think it's interesting that horseback riding as a hobby – is one that people kind of accept. I mean, you kind of generally have to have money. It has like right. a certain like socioeconomic, yeah. um, you know, association. Mm -hmm. um, but dog training as a hobby doesn't seem to me like something people think of as like a thing. Like you do dog training when you have a problem. Yeah. Uh, but you do horseback riding because – you have money and you love animals. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, and this is something I've kind of had to reconcile in recent years because I wanted to get back into horseback riding. But after spending so much time, you know, as like an R plus trainer, 
you know, positive reinforcement trainer, to, to think of the horse training world and the way that you like literally break horses into being ridden, it just doesn't jive anymore. Um, so I've been interested in finding, you know, like different places around the country that actually are working to change that and doing more like positive reinforcement things in the horse training world. Cause I think there is this weird, like, I don't know. There's something about like wanting to dominate like such a big animal that I think people also find attractive. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's, you know, more interesting to them. And for some reason, like just training a dog to, you know, sit politely or something like that. People really look down on, I find not everywhere, but I think certain people frown upon animal training. Or don't think of it as like, I don't know. Like, I I think people would be surprised how many of our clients are like bankers and corporate lawyers and whatever who like at night pour themselves a glass of wine and teach their dogs to play dead. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas if they were like, I'm going to go horseback riding for the weekend and I'm training dressage or whatever, Mm -hmm. it would be like its own. (laughs) Yeah. It would be its its own thing. Um, Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I think people sometimes um, are surprised to, to realize like how much science actually goes into what we do. And it's not just like some silly recreational thing. I mean, like, yeah, teaching your dog to play dead is hilarious. Um, But there is a lot of like actual, like there's a lot of like hardcore science that goes into what we do. So it's not just a through, you know, hobby. Yeah. Hardcore, but like also like, I mean, I'm always thinking like how amazingly easy it is to understand. I mean, I was like, I I grew up thinking like I'm bad at science, which Mm -hmm. now seems hilarious to me because I feel like how can you be bad at like, I mean, even like the best scientists in the world are just figuring things out, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can't be bad at discovery, right? Like you just discover. Um, And, but, you know, I think it's the the way our education system is set up where you feel like, you know, you're good at certain subjects or or not. I mean, also it like the subjects I, I now think are um what's the word like um sorry I'm having a brain fart not like fictional but like arbitrary you know because like Mm. there's math and science and there's art and history and there's English and you know there's (laughs) music and all the things that I poured my life into and got a degree in yes totally superfluous I would say Um, just kidding but I think (laughs) it did make me a good dog trainer um what music yeah how so I think it actually helped with my timing a lot. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there was so much counting and rhythm and, and you know, having to watch, like, a conductor all the time. I think it's helped my clicker timing immensely. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. I, I have uh, myself done it, and I've suggested to other uh, aspiring trainers to work with a metronome sometimes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because um, sometimes it's hard to keep track of counting, but you can just kind of, like, you know, follow the beat. Yep. Um. Huh. So, uh, how, how was, what was it like deciding like, okay, now I'm going to become a trainer? I mean, I know in the end you ended up doing our apprenticeship. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Um, did you look into other programs? Did you, um, I don't know. I'm like, what's the backstory there? That's a great question. And It actually was something I kind of struggled with for a few years because, you know, I have a degree in music. I came to New York City to be a Broadway musician. Yeah, man. And Really? uh, Like, was that your goal to, like, work in, like, the pit? That was my goal. I wanted to be a pit musician because I had done, like, you know, pits all through college and, you know, sort of, like, regional stuff. But that was kind of the goal. Broadway was the goal. And it requires, like, a lot of, uh, like, just networking and like cold calling people you don't know. And like, these are just not skill sets that I have. And I just kind of knew. Really? Is it a lot of like rubbing shoulders? Yeah. Stuff? It's a lot of. Just, no, like, it's super knows. competitive, right? It's very competitive and it's super like who knows who, who's cool, who can hang. Um, and of course, like definitely you have to be talented. Like that goes without saying, but there's just a lot of skills involved that I either didn't possess or was not really interested in honing. Like, I enjoyed performing, but there was a lot about being a musician that I didn't enjoy. And I had been thinking, really, as soon as I kind of started working with Oliver within the first three months of having him, I sort of knew that dog training was something I wanted to explore 
and give more time to, but it took me, I mean, he is six now. Um, it took me a good few years to give myself the permission to sort of let the dream of being a musician go or at least pause it for a while and allow huh. myself to pursue something different, which I may sound crazy to some people, but it took me a little while. No, um, that's, that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I think you, you said that sent to me something like that once before. And, um, and, uh, as an outsider, it seems to me like a mus- being a music, you're not going to stop being a musician. Like you can right. always play, but, um, but it was the first time I, I thought of that, of like, oh, you know, you must, like, I, I'm not explaining it well. Like, I gave up one career <laughs> for another career, but I didn't really yeah. feel like I have to let this one one thing go in order to make this other thing happen. I mean, not I guess I could have felt that way. I just, I never had that feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's an interesting thing to think of, of that feeling for me, because especially like, I mean, yeah, like it's the opportunity of cost, the opportunity costs of life. <laughs> You're giving yeah. your yeah. time and energy to one thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to like, not everybody can like figure out how to, you know, play French horn while training dogs and make a living doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think because I, I mean, I've been playing music since I was five years old and I've been playing the French horn since I was 10. And when I was 14, I decided it was what I wanted to dedicate my entire life to. So I spent a good portion of my life firmly dedicated to this idea and this identity of myself as a musician. Um, And I was just scared, I guess, to shift that identity a little bit and either include something else like dog training or not focus on music as much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, did I waste all that time? No, it was Mm -hmm. awesome. And I wouldn't, you know, trade it for anything, but I definitely, you know, doing the apprenticeship program at school for the dogs was, you know, other than adopting Oliver, probably the second best thing I could have done because it, Oh, yay. Yeah. Good to hear. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely, (laughs) it set me on the right path. And I I had been thinking about doing some type of, you know, certification type program. I had kind of had my heart set on KPA, the Karen Pryor Academy, which I know Mm -hmm. you're a proud graduate of. I am. Um, But I think, just financially, I sort of, I was scared away from it for a bunch of years. And I was like, okay, well, I kept setting myself these dates. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll enroll by this date. Uh, okay. How about next year? Uh, I'm not ready yet, maybe next year. And then I was kind of, I was kind of pushed into like really making a choice because I was in the process of, of losing one job and I needed to find another. And I was like, no time like the present, let's do the apprenticeship program. And it turned mm-hmm. out to be a great decision so it was what kind was, of everything converged all at once was there like one specific like light bulb moment for, during the apprenticeship for you light bulb moment like in terms of um i don't know just thinking about how to communicate this stuff to gotcha. um to other people huh that's a really great question. Or maybe not. <laughs> I don't know if there was a light bulb moment, but there were a lot of topics we covered that I found super interesting. I think particularly particularly the idea of giving an animal choice. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though, you know, positive reinforcement training is, is all about, you know, kind of tricking the animal into thinking that we're tricking them. Or no, tricking the animal into thinking that they're tricking us into giving them great stuff, which I love. (laughs) I love that game. Um, There is still, you know, this, there are still some things that, you know, we need our dogs to be able to do like grooming and handling and things like that, that even so I feel like sometimes we force on them in a way that they don't necessarily like. And so just like things like the bucket game and teaching a dog to opt in to certain mm-hmm. behaviors mm-hmm. like yes I choose to have my nail nails clipped by you I'm not submitting to the process like I choose to allow you to do that I thought that was a really powerful moment mm-hmm. for me when I started learning about those types of techniques how did it change your your life with Oliver um the apprenticeship program in general or that specific uh the apprentice program in general the apprenticeship program in general definitely 
you want to weigh on this, buddy? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> I have things to say. I will be heard. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely changed. Um, I mean, I think I think we had a pretty good relationship in general, which I think is was evident in like the videos that I would submit because he was always just so happy to be a part of whatever I was doing, and he loves training so much. But I think it it helped me be a lot clearer in what I was doing. It helped me quiet my body when I worked with him so that I wasn't giving him unnecessary prompts or, Mm -hmm. you know, giving him more information than was necessary for him to sort of sift through in order to figure out what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me a lot more patient with him because I realized that if he's not getting it, it's probably because I'm not communicating it effectively to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it made me just a better friend and like a partner, you know because when I when I him or in general just in general (laughs) just in general like with humans and also Oliver because it I spend so much time trying to figure out what motivates both my dog clients and my human clients Mm -hmm. and how to get them to do something in a way that is supportive but also like motivational and I kind of, I now use those techniques like on the humans in my life. Well, and I'm, you're a manager now too. So ah, that's part of it as well. Yeah. So, hey guys, I do it on <laughs> you too. <laughs> Any tips for people trying to use positive reinforcement in their lives with humans? Yeah, be kind. Be kind. Be kind, be patient, you know? And it's, you're, you're always going to get someone who's just difficult for the sake of being difficult not that we do not have anyone like that at school for the dogs um but i think we really don't (laughs) we really don't i'm not just saying that but i think really taking the time to not be not get emotional about things if Mm -hmm. things aren't happening the way you want them to and just really thinking okay well how can i motivate this person to do to be more successful in a way that's going to make them happy and also myself happy that's, that's really yeah it. yeah well put I mean I feel like I'm constantly trying to figure out how to um manage people better using mm-hmm. what I know about dog training but then a lot of the time I just like fall down on the floor and I'm like it's too hard I can't <laughs> I'm just not good at this <laughs> well I think almost a decade of school for the dogs would disagree with you there yeah well I mean I think it's just like I mean also like for me um you know like one thing that I've I've learned through this through this journey of building this business is like you can't be good at everything you know like you have to like and again going back to like opportunity costs of life um like Mm -hmm. you have to like at some point as especially as you get older and like you know, you start to feel like, oh, wait, I don't have like forever ahead of me. You have to think mm-hmm. about like where you can be most valuable and give give the most of yourself to the world in the best way. Um, but yeah, there's so so many, so many similarities. And yet, I mean, that's, I think what's so fun about dog training or I mean, animal training in general is it's like a much more simplified version of, <laughs> of the stuff we deal with, with, with each other. Because yeah. like, I mean, you know, you know, like basically a hundred percent of what's happened in Oliver's life. It's not mm-hmm. like he had. It's not like he came to you with like major years of baggage, or that he like goes yeah. off eight hours a day and like has experiences that you don't know about. Like you control the and you control like all the stuff that stuff that he likes. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's you know it's challenging when you know I meet a new dog and I know like I don't have that history with them, and I you know. So I try to, I try to keep things as simple as possible, but I also try to take all of that same simplicity and use it in my interactions with humans or, or, you know, if, you know, I'm managing a group of people, for instance, like I take that simplicity of working with dogs, like how do I set their environment up in such a way that's going to set this person up for success? Or, you know, is there, am I saying too much? Do I need to say less? Mm -hmm. Do I need to say more? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So I think it definitely... Because you have to really think about when you're working with a dog, you have to think about every aspect 
everything that's in the room around you when you're working mm-hmm. with them and everything that you're doing, every little twitch in your body, where are your treats? Um, what's your right hand doing? So I try to think about that when I communicate with, with humans now as well, because I think it, it does make a difference. Yeah. Well, there's so much in common between, or I mean, not uh, in common is the wrong word. Like mm. there's, um, I think if you're interested in dogs and dog training, it's not a big leap to become interested in like human yeah. body language. Yeah. Because, um, you know, dogs are talking to us. They're just not talking to us in the way we talk to each other, mm-hmm. but humans talk to each other without words as well. Um, there's this great book called um, The the Like Switch um, that I would recommend to, to, to you as someone who has similar interests. And it's all yeah. about like, yeah, it's written by this um, FBI agent whose like job was to, um, to like, uh, I guess, convert people into being informants for him. And so he talks about, um, like, I don't know, just different things you can see in people that tell you, like, what's going on, going on in their minds. Um, Right around when I was, when I uh, was reading it, I remember I went out with a, on a date with a guy who was, like, biting his lip. And and in that book, they talk about how that means like there's something that you're like trying to not say, which seems like I was like, really? Like, that seems so obvious. But but I was out going. I was out with this guy. Magnolia is saying hi. Hi, Hi, baby. I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone. Yeah. (laughs) She (laughs) anyway, this guy uh, like after biting his lip like nonstop for like 20 minutes, told me that he uh, was a recovering heroin addict. Oh, goodness. I was like, oh, I guess that's what you were, like, trying to not say. (laughs) Should I say it? Is this the time? I'm sure that's probably hard for him to figure out when the best time is to say that, but he wants to say it. Yeah, He doesn't want to be dishonest. The other thing that he talked about in this book, and I think I, like, probably this is in, like, psychology classes as well, too. Magnolia, are you part of this interview now? Yeah? Yeah. The other thing he talks about is like the three ingredients that you have to have in order to feel um, closeness to someone mm. are, or you have to have two of three ingredients. They are dis, uh, proximity, uh, duration, and um, intensity. So like either you've known someone for a long time and you've like been physically close to them, like, you know, you someone you sat next to at a desk for 10 years. Um mm. Or you know someone you grew up with, um, or um, or you need to have like a very intense experience with someone, and you're you're physically close to them. Like there needs to be two of those three ingredients, and mm-hmm. I think about that all the time. And um, uh, I've been feeling that lately with work because I feel like so. I feel just like extra like since COVID happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you feel this way too, but like I just feel like closer to like all the staff. yeah even though we're all like we've all we all have not been in the same place like I just feel like going through this intense thing together um has made me feel um just more I mean you know I've been like in staff meetings where I like I'm like I'm gonna cry (laughs) (laughs) well we very much have been you know in the trenches together, I think, because this really, I mean, it didn't just throw us as individuals for a loop, but like, obviously this has had huge effects on the business itself. And, you know, I think everyone who's kind of stuck around, you know, because they were able to, um, you know, really just dedicated to kind of making sure that we all as a group really saw this through. So I agree. I'm just like very weepy, over the team that we have like all the time. And now, you know, being in these like, you know, managerial shoes, I'm like, everyone's great. You're just, yeah. you do such good work. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear you say that too. So I don't, I don't feel quite as like <laughs> crazy and emotional. No, I told but, you I do all my emoting in private, but it does happen. It's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> um, I think also, you know, Kate and I like, you know, feel like, oh, like, this is like our baby and like other people are caring for the baby. Like yeah. it's gotten to the point like where it's not just like the two of, like the two of us can't care for it alone anymore. And like how exciting and wonderful Big that baby. we have this, yeah. <laughs> that we have all these other people who are like, you know, in it to, to help, 
help the dogs. So any major success stories with clients that you've worked with that, that you could share? Any major success stories? Or, I, or, or just funny stories? <laughs> I have a lot of funny stories, but I do, I have one major success story because they are, I mean, we're still in a transitional period right now, but I'm just so proud of these clients. They're very fresh on my mind because we just had a session together, um, I think last week. And we've done, I think, maybe like seven, upwards of like seven or nine sessions since quarantine hit. Um, our little Corgi, Nugs, is Nugs. so wonderful. He's so, so wonderful. Yeah, so Nugs the Corgi is um, a puppy that I've been seeing pretty regularly since the start of quarantine. So I, I don't know, maybe April maybe that's when we we saw each other virtually for the first time um and you know it was just very basic manners things at first you know a lot of foundation behaviors sit down i think he learned rollover which was really fun um but he went through through some transitions in his life he moved homes he spent time you know out of state came back to new york and developed a level of leash reactivity that was um pretty difficult for his guardians to um, understand and manage. And I think so, this is this is happening more and more where people got, or not more and more. It is, I should say, it is happening. I, I've yeah. I've now heard of more than a handful of people who got puppies during quarantine when they were living in some like rural part of the country, and now their puppies are are adolescent age and in New York City. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah really freaking hard right it's really it's really freaking hard and I think for Nugs it was a combination of a lot of different things and you know he did have an incident uh, I, I don't remember if it was on leash or if it was at a dog park but he, he had a, a bad experience with a dog and I think that has definitely contributed to a lot of his reactivity um and at first we weren't sure if the reactivity was motivated by like a play frustration I want to get to that dog and I want to play with them but I can't and I'm mad or if it was, I'm afraid of you because I got hurt once. Please stay away from me. Um, but we did a yard evaluation for them. And he has been coming to yard. And he, is, he has been making a lot of progress with his off-leash interactions with other dogs. He's still a little insecure. And then once he gets comfortable, he doesn't quite know how to politely engage with the other dogs. He's just like a typical like dude, teenage dog um, who's like a little bit self-aware and scared of things. Um, but he was reactive to like the jingling of dog collars. He couldn't be outside for any longer than like five minutes because he was just barking his head off at everything. Um, and he's just, he's done such good work and his guardians have been really diligent about managing his life in such a way that his stress levels are now so low on a regular basis that he's reacting to things far less and we're actually able to start doing some real work getting him happy about seeing these things that previously made him feel uncomfortable. So I'm just so happy with Nugs and his people. They're, they're awesome and really dedicated to helping that little guy. So I'm very pleased to have been a part of their journey. That's awesome. How has it been uh, transitioning to teaching both private lessons and classes online? You know, I, I was going to do it either way because that's what I signed up for, but I was definitely uh, an internal naysayer at first. Um, and I've been very open with this, uh, with clients as well about this when they're kind of like waffling in between, do I take an online class or don't I take the online class? If it's the only option you have, take the online class. I went into it thinking it was going to be too hard, too impractical, not enough room to demo. It's been great. I mean, all of my online classes have been, I feel pretty successful. Oliver agrees because he was my demo dog. Um, and it's, I, I feel like in a way I was almost closer with those students because mm -hmm. I made such an effort to make us all feel like we were connected and like we were actually in the same room. Um, so I thought it was great. And I, I love that we've been doing the virtual training. I really hope that it continues 
in the future because we've gotten to work with people all over the world and help dogs that we never would have met because they didn't have access to us. Um, yeah, it truly is like one of the weird blessings yeah. of, of COVID. Thanks, uh, COVID. <laughs> thanks, math, mass death and destruction. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it's like it, I, there's just so many horrible things that have happened and so many people are suffering know, that it's I like I will – I will take that one win, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what was, I'm curious what your family's reaction was to you saying, Hey, I'm going to now become a trainer. (laughs) Um, so I didn't tell them for like a while. I, I didn't tell them for a couple months because I was in this weird transitional period where I was in between jobs. I didn't quite know what I was doing. I had just signed a new lease. Like everything was very up in the air. And I felt like if, all these things were uncertain. And then I threw into it, Hey, I'm going to do this apprenticeship, but like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. And I don't know if I'm going to get a job at the end of it. Cool. Right. No, like you can't tell your parents that when you're 32 and like, you're supposed to be stable. (laughs) Like that's, nobody wants to hear that. So I definitely waited for a couple months into it and just like slowly started kind of dropping hints and stuff. And when I eventually told them, Um, I wouldn't say that there was like a huge like interest level in it. It was just like, oh, you're doing that. Sounds fun, I guess. Change of subject. Um, But now that, you know, it's transformed into a job and, you know, I've been doing it for a while and they see how happy it makes me. I think that they're a lot more enthusiastic about it. My parents just want me to be happy. So if I can do that and also pay my bills, they're absolutely pleased as punch. Where do you where do you see your dog training career going? Where do you, you, know, see, where do you see yourselves in, that, in the next five years? I know I it's such a hard thing to imagine. I think I just it sounds so cheesy, but I really just want to keep getting better at what I do, and I I want my skill levels to increase so that when I get a client that maybe you know. A year ago, I felt a little wishy-washy on. I now feel confident that I can help that person. Um, So yeah, I really, I just want to get better at what I do. And I want to start working with other species a little Mm. bit more. I did, I was supposed to go to um, Santa Fe in July to go to the Villanova Training Center, which is a positive reinforcement training center for horses. And I was going to do like a weekend intensive there. Um, canceled due to COVID bummer, but stuff like that, I'm hoping to do a little bit more of. So just how about, getting... some, how about some pig training? I would love to pig. train pigs. There's a pig in my neighborhood and I think they'd be keen. <gasps> they'd be happy to bring, uh, bring their pig over. I want to train pigs. I want to, I want to train everything. I tried to do some, uh, some training with my leopard gecko before she passed. She was oh, right. into it. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. really figure out what motivated the gecko other than me leaving her alone. Oh, you loved Herbie Jane, right? I did. Herbie Jane. You loved her so much. I did. She was, she was the light of my life. I get it, sir. You're jealous. I know. I know. Well-timed. Very (laughs) well-timed. Well, Erin, it's, it's so nice to talk to you. Have the chance to catch up with you. It's, it's my great pleasure being your boss. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And I, I couldn't be happier to have you. And Oliver, yes. And Oliver. Hi, Oliver. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To have you on the team. You know, and also occurs to me when we're talking about the French horn, you know, as a performer, like there's so much like teaching. Yeah. Teaching is a form of performance, isn't it? I mean, it is. And that's. Don't you think? I have always lived for the applause and I I continue to live for the applause. So I think I, I personally find my sessions and my classes to be very theatrical when it's appropriate and very like sort of dramatic but you know when it comes down to the training like it's very quiet and I I think it's an interesting contrast for anyone who watches me train because it's like you can be that quiet you haven't spoken in like 30 seconds what's happening huh yes it is is definitely it is definitely a a bit of a performance which is a bit of a performance. Like. Well, in that, like, you know, you, you know generally where things need to go. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's just, like, you in front of a bunch of people. And, um, yeah. I, I taught for a long time in a lot of different scenarios. 
but I was always adamant that I never wanted to be like a public school music teacher. That was not ever something that I saw myself doing because I just don't, I mean, same place every day, same people, same time. Like I, I can't do it. It's too much. But, um, I did, I do remember when I had told my parents finally that, you know, I was doing this apprenticeship at school for the dogs. Um, my dad, who says very little, uh, took a couple minutes and he said, so I guess you did want to be a teacher after all. You just didn't want to teach kids. And I was like, well, kind of, I do, (laughs) I do still, most of what I do is teaching humans, teaching humans how to teach dogs. So it's true. It's true. It's a, but it's a different kind of teacher and, and well, you know, I, I hate, you know, I really hated school. Mm. Um, I, I was not, I mean, I, I worked hard as a student, but I, I didn't love it. And, um, I remember thinking very clearly, like, I don't understand why anybody would want to be a teacher and have Mm -hmm. to commit to going to school for their entire lives. And so now I think like, I remind myself all the time how, you know, how kind of hilarious it is now that I like have, mm-hmm. have my own school. <laughs> right. It's so ironic that, like, but it's, I, but it's like a school the way I, I think like school should be where right. like the students are like super psyched yeah. to get there. And I don't know, maybe they just need to use food. in regular <laughs> school. <laughs> I mean, maybe I think it's, I think it's just that thing that we were talking about earlier where, you know, I don't know that. And I understand how hard pressed teachers are to have any leeway, you know, given the curriculum that they have, but I don't know how much time goes into figuring out what motivates each individual student. I think it's just like, let's all hang on together on this life draft, take the test and then graduate. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, let's just get through. Like, if they had the luxury of sitting down and like coming up with individual training plans for each human right. student and figuring out what their reinforcers were, I think it would be a different place for sure. It's negative reinforcement. It's, you know, do yeah. this or else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting and, and sad because I think it could be, it could be so much more fun. Um, but yeah. anyway, thanks for taking the time to talk and uh, let's, We'll do this again soon. Bye. If you are a professional dog trainer or are thinking about becoming a dog trainer, make sure that you go to schoolforthedogs.com slash podcast community to sign up to be invited to this new community app we are rolling out. It is going to have a ton of resources for you that will be free and it will allow you to connect with other trainers and aspiring trainers in your area. Again, sign up to be invited at schoolforthedogs.com slash podcast community, or you can text your email address to 917-414-2625. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com. 